It's in the Old Testament. That's Esther chapter 4. You could also just listen along. Hmm. And as you turn there, would you pray with me? Our God, we know that we are now coming before your word. So would you help us to hear your voice? Would you plant the truth of your word deep in our hearts and stir us to follow you? Guide us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read here from from Esther in chapter 4 as we continue our read through the book of Esther. I'll start in verse 1 and we'll we'll read through the the entire chapter. This is Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. 
And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's word. So now we've come to the narrative as we've been reading these past couple of weeks through the drama of Esther to what is considered the most famous line in the entire book. It's at the end of of verse 14. You heard it. I'll read it again. Uh, Mordecai says to Esther, Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And before we look at that, we have to remember how we got to this position, what's happening to lead us up to this. So you remember then that the Jews had been conquered from Israel, from their homeland, the Promised Land, and and exiled out of that homeland uh, by the Assyrians originally, and then again uh, the ones who were left over, the small little remnant there, by the Babylonians who then uh, came to, to control. And now, the whole empire is under the rule of the Persians. So the ruler of the Persians, then, is this king, King Ahasuerus. We've seen him in the past few chapters. That's his Hebrew name. Sometimes Bibles translate the Greek, which is King Xerxes. And this king, this Persian king, has absolute power, at least under heaven. And so his seat of power is in the inner court. And not even the queen, his own wife, is allowed to come into that court unless she is called. If a person comes when they're not called, Esther tells us, that that person will be executed like that unless the king gives them special permission. So this king then can do whatever he pleases. And we've seen that happen. He, we've seen the king toss out his first queen, uh, Vashti, just because he was upset with her. We've seen this king uh, take a harem of different women each night. We've seen this king uh, take Esther as his queen, this young Jewish girl, just because he liked her. And we've seen him sign off on the complete destruction of the Jews, which was requested by the official Haman, just because of his personal beef with Mordecai. So we've seen the king then set the date of destruction, which is now to happen 11 months from now, and it's to entirely wipe out the Jews. It's an ancient holocaust, basically. And so the couriers, the messengers of the king, had sent out this message about how this destruction was going to happen, and it goes through the entire empire. And as we might expect, the entire empire then is thrown into confusion, is thrown into mourning as people are crying out. 
In fact, many of them, the text says, are, are clothing themselves with, with sackcloth, which is this really scratchy material, and, and putting ashes on themselves, which sounds strange to us, but that was their way of, of displaying distress outwardly that was happening inwardly. And all of this distress is, is displayed in the entire kingdom except within the bubble of the king's palace. In fact, in this, in this chapter, you may have heard it, Esther, at the beginning, has no idea that her own people, the Jews, including herself, have been appointed for slaughter. She has no clue until the servants report to her what's happening with her cousin, uh, Mordecai, who's mourning in sackcloth outside the king's gate. And so then when Esther is talking back and forth with Mordecai about this horrible, horrible decree that's happened, they both decide that something must be done. So then that brings us to our theme for this week. We're talking about themes in the book of Esther. This week's theme is the theme of human responsibility. Now, that's a, a strange way to word, word that, I know. I'm not just calling it obedience. The wording is a human responsibility, because often when we talk about doctrines of the Bible or teachings of the Bible, uh, we talk about human responsibility. That's the term used. And we usually pair it with another doctrine, which is God's sovereignty. We hear those two things together, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And God's sovereignty we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, more uh, about what that is. But just briefly here, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean God's complete control over everything. That God governs all things. That God is involved in the outplay of everything. And I know that's difficult, we'll talk about that later, but this sovereignty is the concrete floor. It's the solid ground upon which uh, everything is built. In fact, last week we talked about the, that justice is sure. We build that assurance of justice on the floor of God's sovereignty, that God's kingship is higher than even King Ahasuerus's kingship. But... When we talk about God's sovereignty, we also, almost in the same breath, have to talk about human responsibility. And it almost sounds silly to mention what this is, but, but by human responsibility, we mean that human actions and decisions actually matter. That humans really affect the world that we live in, even though God is also sovereign. Now, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, those two things are simultaneously true. They're not in conflict with each other. Uh, they're not taking turns. This is not a wrestling match where one kind of gets tired and then taps out and the other one comes in and he gets tired and taps out so the other comes in. Both are true. We call this compatibilism. Now, that's not a term from the Bible. You're used by the Bible. But that helps us to understand what this is, that these two things are compatible even if they sometimes seem contradictory. And it's very important for us to see these things as both 
true. Uh, a famous theologian, D.A. Carson, in an excellent book called oh, How Long, O Lord, uh, when he, he wrestles with the Bible's teaching on suffering and evil, um, he talks about this like this. You hear how important it is to him. Carson writes, writes this. He says, it is essential. I cannot say this strongly enough. It is utterly essential to doctrinal and spiritual well-being to maintain the diverse polarities in the nature of God simultaneously. For instance, if you work through the biblical passages that bluntly insist that God in some sense stands behind evil and do not simultaneously call to mind the countless passages that insist that God is unfailingly good, then in a period of suffering, you might be tempted to think of God as a vicious sovereign thug. If you focus on all the passages that stress God's sovereign sway over everything and do not simultaneously call to mind his exhortations to pray, to intercede, to repent, to examine yourself, you might turn into a Christian fatalist and mistake your thoughtless stoicism for stalwart faith. In other words, Carson's telling us that it is essential to hold opposite true things together. Otherwise, we will lose something that's true about God. Uh, so, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, we have to tie these things together in our brain, squeeze it in there, pack it down tight, and then take a rope and bind it around it and just cinch it up. Uh, otherwise, one truth will try to drive out the other. So, if, if that tugs at your brain a bit, uh, it's okay. I know this is difficult. Um... But if you know anything about drums, I know uh, just enough to be, you know, chaotic about it, but if you know anything about drums, oftentimes drum heads need tightening. Uh, that's how the sound is nice and bright and, and sharp. And so if you're tightening the head of a snare drum, you see those little um, silver metal pieces around the outside, and you take a key, and you're supposed to twist it to tighten up the drum head. And the way that you tighten up that drum head is you can't just go in a circle around the drum. You're supposed to go in a star pattern. So tighten this one, then go opposite and tighten that one, and then back opposite and tighten that one. You see what I mean? Until the whole drum is tightened. Otherwise, if we go just around one side, uh, it distorts the sound of the drum, or it can't even damage the head of the drum altogether. We have to balance the truths of the Bible in a star pattern, too. So we know, according to the scripture, for example, we see that God is entirely powerful and gentle. We see that God has huge expressions of love and of wrath. We see God as just and merciful. And it will help us then as we try to, try to hold these things together, God's sovereignty and our, our responsibility to bind them together so that, so that our drum doesn't get distorted. Otherwise, 
We become fatalists, thinking that, oh, God's in control, I don't have to do anything. Or we become moralists. I have to do everything, and God's kind of on the side. We know that God's sovereignty is at work in all things, but this does not negate our human responsibility that we are called by God to pray, to obey, to follow, to do something in the face of injustice. We see that in the book of Esther, but we also see it in many parts of the Bible. My favorite example of this happening hand in hand is in the book of Nehemiah. It's the book right before Esther. So in, in Nehemiah, uh, it's, a, it's similar to the time period of Esther. Esther's over in Persia, but in Nehemiah, some of God's people have now gone back to the promised land. They've returned to rebuild what was destroyed, so, the, so they're putting together, uh, they're rebuilding the temple, and they're rebuilding the cities, and now in Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the walls, and they've met some opposition from the people. This is in Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Nehemiah says this to the people. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And then the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work. With one hand, he held his weapon and with the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the peoples, this work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from each other. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. I know that's kind of a long passage, but basically Nehemiah has said two things. He said, listen, people, I want you to fight. In fact, where they're building the wall, they've got a hammer on one side and a sword on the other. It's a rough way to build a wall, by the way. I can imagine guys pounding things in and the other kind of fighting off people on the other hand. But you get what he means. Fight for your people. Fight for the wall. And at the same time, he says, God fights for you. We see those things uh, together. He's saying, God, it, God is in control, but yet I want you people to still build, to still battle, to still take courage. And I can imagine that you probably know what this is like. That on one hand, we have to trust God in his sovereignty. And on the other, we still want to follow God in our response. Esther got this. She knew what this was like. In fact, in the discussion uh, in verse 14, she's told that deliverance will come 
from the Jews. God is sovereign, he is in control, and yet she's called to a response, to an action. As, as Mordecai says, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, Mordecai is saying to Esther, God will save his people, and you're the one he's going to use to save. So Esther, don't, don't grow lax. Esther, don't, don't just sit back. Esther, don't, don't keep silent with your head in the sand. Esther, don't let fear control you. Esther, we need you to stand and to save us. Now, at this point, some people might be thinking, Nathan, wait, 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 hold on. I thought that we are saved by grace, not by works, and, and that this only comes through Jesus. Yes, that's true. Uh, when it comes to sin... No one, no human, apart from God himself, can save except Jesus alone. In fact, you've heard that uh, right at the confession, after our, after our confession of sin, there's a section of assurance. I'll read it again from Ephesians chapter 2. If I can get there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation, we know, is by grace, and not a single bit by works. It's God's gift. But look at the next verse, and see the outcome of God's grace. The rest of Paul's thought is in verse, well, back up to 9. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, it is the grace of Jesus alone which saves us, but it also changes us so that we'll do the sort of work that he's prepared for us. So you can imagine Mordecai saying, we Jews are doomed. Esther, we need you to stand and save us. And Esther saying, I'm saved by grace. God is in control. I'm going to heaven anyway. So it just doesn't matter what I do. That, 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 that sounds crazy, right? And no, no one should say that, and yet we see that mindset in Christians all the time. That I, I got my ticket to heaven in Jesus, and so then I spend my life sitting and waiting at a train station, doing nothing but waiting for the train to come. 
the goal and the mindset of some Christians is just get saved. And of course, we must be saved, and this must happen by Jesus, but there is so much more to the new life he brings than just that. Of course, we know, we said it uh, during, uh, during our section of, um, oh, what do we call it? When we recite the truths of the scripture together, when we pulled from the, the larger catechism question, 77, uh, that we must be justified. And, that, and that's a fancy term that, that, that is referenced to God's act of grace that's received by faith in which Jesus pardons all the sin of a believer every drop of it. And for, for a Christian, then that person is counted righteous before God. This happens once in the lifetime of a believer for all time. And yet at the same time, God calls us to be sanctified. This also is an act of God's grace by which he helps us to grow in the grace of Jesus to continue to put sin to death in our lives, to downplay its influence, to push it aside by his grace so that we will be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Sanctification, then, is ongoing in the life of a believer. In sanctification, we can see the marriage of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both are at work as we are working out his grace in our lives. We can hear this uh, multiple times in Scripture. I put the verses in, in your bulletin so you don't have to flip through these. I'll just run through several of them just because I think they're important. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And lastly, my favorite one. I like this one. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you hear it both at work? It's not that Paul's saying, listen, I have to do my part, and God has to do his part. No, he's saying both of these things are at work at once. I am toiling. I am struggling. I have and bear human responsibility, and yet my toil is by his energy that's working powerfully in me by his sovereignty. I want that. I want a life like that for me and for us. We're actually living Christianly by God's sovereignty. But we know that this is not 
easy. In fact, it's very difficult. And Esther has to face the reality of her human responsibility, knowing that if she actually goes in to approach the king about this, she puts even her own life at great risk. So that she says at the end of this section, if I perish, I perish. She knows that there's no guarantee that following her human responsibility will end in a trouble-free outcome. And there are just a lot of unknowns here. Uh, Mordecai uh, calls her to help, not with a statement, but with a question. You remember he says, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Because Esther is not called to know every detail of God's sovereign plan. What Esther is called to is to follow God, even though she does not know exactly where he's leading, so that she won't grow lax, so that she won't keep silent with her head in the sand, so that she won't let fear control her. But Esther like us, then has to learn to trust God with her obedience. That's the reason for us, by the way, why Jesus, when he's talking to the ones who had followed him, he, he, he calls those followers to count the cost of discipleship. Just like if you were about to build a house, you would count the cost beforehand. And by that, he does not mean, listen, I want you to see into the future, or, or, or listen, I want you to crunch all the numbers and, and see what the total is at the end. When he says, I want you to count the cost, he says, I want you to be willing to give it all up. I want you to surrender it all to me. So that if, when the day comes, that even your very life is asked of you, you are prepared and willing to follow God. Now, last bit here. I know that not every uh, moment of following God is as dramatic as this moment is for Esther. You know, uh, most of us uh, never in our lives will be, uh, if maybe even all of us, will never be in a position to save an entire people group from destruction. So it's not always this dramatic, although I, I, I also uh, don't want to underestimate the, the possibility that there may be great things that God calls you to Perhaps the Lord is calling you in particular to something like foreign missions or public office or very difficult ministries like working with people in prisons and homelessness and severe addiction. But even if that's not the case, we know that, that most, even if that is the case, most of our human responsibility just happens in very normal contexts, in our daily lives, and the people that we run into, in the situations that we have at the grocery store, 
that sometimes we bump into folks and who knows whether you are brought to this for such a time as this. I can't say, just because the Bible doesn't go there, exactly what every one of those occurrences looks like, and nor can I say exactly what you should do in every one of those instances. Everyone is different. But I can say that we want to be sensitive, prayerful followers of God so that he's leading every moment of our lives. Our human responsibility is not meant to burden us and to weigh us down. Our human responsibility teaches us that as we follow God, whatever the cost, actively seeking to obey him, we'll see his energy powerfully at work within us. Would you pray with me? Our God, we know that these things are, are neither simple nor easy, but Lord, we ask that you would be our strength. When we fear or are tempted to be quiet when we need to speak, Lord, would you help us to be obedient to you with joy so that we'll see you at work. We trust you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.